afternoon all, both here and on the phone. I understand there are a few out with colds and various things today. Some of you work in very public places and I've probably come across almost every virus and sneeze that uh, is available to man. Well, maybe not Ebola yet, but uh, still and all, uh, it's out there, and I guess our immune systems do build up, but sometimes we come across one that we're not ready to fight, I guess. Trumpets is coming up in less than two weeks now, Thursday the 26th. I guess we're all very aware of that, but I thought I would mention it to let us know it's only 13 days away from today, less than two weeks, and suddenly it's here. I pretty much concluded my series on Satan last time I spoke, and then Terry carried on with some more information about that last week, so I think we've probably spent enough time on him, Uh, but at the same time, we have some things coming up in the world that he has very much to do with, and I did even mention that during that series about how he is the present ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air, and so is very, very much involved in what is going on on the earth today, and God is allowing him to do some of the things that he, by his current nature, wishes to do anyway. So he's playing into God's hands and causing a lot of prophecies to begin to come to pass. I want to address an overview today of some of the things that Christ said and expects us to be aware of and watching for. Uh, In that sense, nothing new, but maybe some thoughts here that uh, we have not brought out before. Uh, and, of, of course, a repetition and a reminder of things that he had to say. I want to go, first of all, to Matthew 24, where he says, And Emmanuel went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Uh, the temple had been there. They had been familiar with it uh, all their lives. And yet, they wanted to make remarks about it, to to discuss it, to discuss perhaps the architecture and the beauty of it and various things, and how remarkable that temple was, maybe compared to other buildings or whatever. I don't know the exact nature of their comments, but at any rate, they focused on that temple. And Emmanuel said to them, See you not all these things? Truly I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now they did not know uh, that he was referring only to that particular building, but that he would uh, go on to explain some things about the end time, because that would be their question. Uh, Obviously they would begin to think, well, this is going to be torn down, well, when? And uh, you've told us you're going to go away and you're going to come back. When will that be? And we can see from uh, Scriptures later on in the book of Acts and through Paul in various places 
that they did indeed, even after he had ascended, still expect him to come back during their lifetime. And he allowed them to think that way for his own purposes. He didn't lie to them, he just didn't tell them the whole story. Uh, he had his reasons for them only knowing a certain amount. I think part of those reasons may have been that had they thought it was 2,000 years away, they might have gone asleep at his wish. But it is the feeling that things could happen and happen to you that gives you uh, the motivation to move forward, to overcome, to grow, to make use of and redeem the time, knowing that the time is near. So it doesn't matter how near, in that sense it is, if you think it's near, then you can derive motivation from it, you see. So he just left it ambiguous on purpose for their good. Now, would they have liked to have known all the ins and outs and all the answers? Yes. But he did not intend to give them for his own purposes. Now, I'll cite the book of Daniel here as well. Daniel talks about many of the things that the book of Revelation discusses. And yet, the book of Revelation was not sealed to the end, but the book of Daniel, Daniel was. Why? What would make it a book that he would want to seal so that it could not be understood until the end? I think conditions are such now that we can begin to understand Daniel better, maybe not fully yet, but better as we see events transpire. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. He wrote about the kingdom of Babylon and the great image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up of himself and of his power and his uh, ideas of worldwide rulership and all those things. Now, more modern scholars, 17th century, 18th, 19th, 20th century scholars, have gone through the book of Daniel, as did the church, and tried to identify what all this is talking about and what it means. But I don't think we even began to understand who the end-time Babylon was until recent years. Now I find that even some Protestants or writers on the Internet have made the connection that modern America is the modern Babylon. What have they done? They have simply looked at what ancient Babylon was, what it did, and then they have analyzed what is going on in the world today, and they've begun to make connections between that prophecy and what they see before their very eyes. Just as I went through some years ago a series on modern Babylon and showed that there was only, or is only, one nation on the face of the earth today that fits Revelation 18, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and other scriptures about the end-time Babylon. 
mean, how long does it take you to make the connection of who is the hammer of the whole earth, as Jeremiah puts it? <laughs> you know, that becomes obvious even to secular people who are even non-religious. They can see the, the parallels between the great ancient Roman Empire even and the modern Babylonian Empire. And the definitions in the Bible talk about how Babylon, or the great whore, Babylon at the end, uh, has made the whole earth rich. Well, whose dollar was it that did that? So you can go on and on and on. That's just a couple of minor examples. But how could you possibly have understood <clears throat> the end-time meeting of the book of Babylon, I mean the book of Daniel, without understanding who modern Babylon is? Once you understand it is this nation, and its government in particular, then it is much easier to begin to understand what Daniel's talking about. Then we have such things in the book of Daniel about how an order will come to build Jerusalem. And it's hard for people to make the connection because there's a Jerusalem in the Middle East that is a city there today. Its wall is there. The city is there. And yet, the book of Revelation, I mean, the book of Daniel talks in chapter 9 about a, an order to come to build Jerusalem. And that 70 weeks later, that prophecy will have been fulfilled and the temple will have been defiled within the Jerusalem temple complex. Now, if your focus is on the Middle East, and you don't know where the true Zion, the true Jerusalem, the true temple was, there is no way on earth you could understand the book of Daniel. <clears throat> when you understand the true location where the original promised land is, right here in northern Arizona and southern Utah, and you know the location of Zion, and you know pretty much the, the uh, location of the original ancient Jerusalem, and I think I know where the Mount of Olives was, the specific mountain that it is, then you can begin to apply that prophecy to the correct place and maybe start to understand what is being talked about. But until that knowledge comes, you have nothing to tie it to that makes any sense. <clears throat> so what the scholars have done in the past is try to show that Antiochus Epiphanes, long, long, long ago, stood in the temple and defiled the altar, and that was a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Well, I have a problem with that, because it says the prophecy will be sealed until the end. In other words, nobody can understand it until the end is here. So you can try to find ways to explain it away, or explain that it happened in the past, or maybe you can try to apply it to the future, and say, well, the Jews are going to build a temple as soon as they get rid of the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim mosque that is there on what they call the Hill of Jerusalem. And the Jews to this day claim that that Wailing Wall is the West Wall of the original temple. I've been there. 
and I've seen all those rocks still there on top of one another. And in spite of what Christ says right here, <coughs> they think part of the temple is still standing stone upon stone. And that's the best knowledge that they have. <coughs> it completely contradicts what Christ is saying here. Now, if you know where the true temple was built, where the true Jerusalem was, and you go there today, you will not find one stone upon another. None. And Christ disfellowshipped the Jews, there in, what is it, Matthew 23, and said that their house would be desolate until they blessed and accepted those whom God sent. They never accepted the original apostles. They were enemies to the end. And they have never accepted the true church and God's truths ever since. So, these prophecies have to be fulfilled in some other way than what mankind believes today. It has to be. Because it simply doesn't fit what we see over there today. He says, not one stone will be up that is not thrown down. And the end of the book of Daniel, of course, shows Christ returning at the end of the 1,335 days and the first resurrection occurring at that time there in Daniel 12. Well, how are you going to understand that until you see the events that Christ talks about in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and the book of Revelation coming to pass? There have been all kinds of speculations as to when the Great Tribulation will occur, and in some minds did occur. There are people who have been connected with the Church of God who believe it's already happened, or that currently today we are already in it. They believe that. <clears throat> and yet I believe that there are certain events that have to occur that indicate to me that it cannot yet be. And we do not yet know the start date, because we don't know what date the temple will be completed, what date the order to build Jerusalem afterward occurs, in order to know when the abomination of desolation will be set up. But that's the day the three and a half years of Great Tribulation begin. So how are you going to understand Daniel when you don't even know where Jerusalem is? You don't know where the temple is. <clears throat> it hasn't been built yet. Therefore, the tribulation cannot have started. It's very simple, really. But people get off the track so very, very easily. So God sealed up the truth in the book of Daniel until his end-time church could recognize and see the things that have to transpire, where it will happen, how it will happen, and who will do it. <clears throat> when you understand those things, then you begin to unravel and comprehend what the book is talking about. But heretofore, no one has had the knowledge necessary to even begin to unravel the story. You've got to know who the Assyrian is. I believed nearly all my life that the Assyrian was Germany. 
And now I'm beginning to sort of shift some gears in my mind and grind a little metal as I do it and comprehend that it may not be the Germans at all. It could very well be the Russians. And there are ancient records that show people from ancient Assyria moving into Crimea and other parts of southern Russia and some of those countries that are there. There may be some evidence that some of them moved into Germany as well, but it's very hard to ferret out and to completely understand. But even as America today can clearly be shown to be defined as the United States, we are not Babylonian by birth. Essentially, we're Israelite and Ephraimite by birth. And then a mixture of peoples come here, which Jeremiah talks about. And that's fine. They're all part of Ephraim today. But if you go into history and start looking for the ancient Babylonians, are you going to be able to trace them to here? More than likely not. Because it's a different fulfillment. It's a fulfillment of the empire and what that empire did back then, but through a different people. Although I would not be surprised to learn someday that many of those who have been connected with Washington, D.C. may indeed have Babylonian roots even racially. It wouldn't surprise me at all if that came out at some point. But nonetheless, you have to examine <clears throat> these prophecies not necessarily entirely on where people of a certain race moved. Sometimes it is a fulfillment of what they are doing, and you have to analyze what is happening before your very eyes. And as you see certain things take shape, then you begin to understand what the Bible was talking about. So it's a bit tricky. And we have to be close to God. We have to examine His Word carefully in order to understand. Now, there are many writers on the Internet today who feel that we're going to have a financial crisis in this country, that the stock market will fall, that there will be difficulties, and we're going to go through some years of very, very hard times. They're not basing it on Bible prophecy. They're basing it on what they see happening in the financial world. The lying, the chicanery, the uh, misuse, the fraud, the various things that they see going on, and hearing people who say, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, and they put the story together and they see that our jobs have gone overseas. They see that the dollar is losing power. They see all kinds of things that make them realize that we are in trouble. And most of them come to the conclusion that if you have enough food and water and a bug out spot, that you'll have to duck and weather the storm and three or four or five or maybe ten years later, uh, we will recover and America will go back the foremost nation on earth because that's our manifest destiny. I mean, that's, that's what has been programmed into our minds from youth. The American dream will not die, it will have a hiccup. 
and the hiccup will last from two to ten years. Now, that's what most of them think, and that's what they'll say in their preparedness articles and seminars and various things. Now, when I read the Bible, I get a totally different picture. Now, it will be a hiccup, and it may not last much more than ten years, but the whole tapestry of the world is going to change, and we're going to see that. Only once Christ returns and the millennium starts will the recovery begin. But in the meantime, there is nothing but death, mayhem, and so on that is going to increase and increase and take over until most of the population of the earth is dead. That they do not grasp and understand. Although, many of them will say the plan of these people who are working at a new world government and world order is to destroy 90% or 95%, pick your number, of the people on the earth. They see that, and yet even though some of the most clear-thinking ones will somehow feel that the American people will somehow survive and transcend and the thing will go away. They just don't get the picture. They don't understand the Bible. And even the religious ones don't get the, the full, real picture either. So he says not one stone will remain upon another. Now that temple that he spoke of physically there was right up here north of Cedar City, and there's not one stone left on top of another. That's the Mount of Olives up there that he was sitting on when he spoke this prophecy. So what is in the Middle East and the Wailing Wall and, the, and all that stuff means nothing. It's a wrong focus by Satan to get people's eyes there when the real story is over here. Now if you want to apply this spiritually, <clears throat> we can say that the church itself will be decimated because it is called a temple as well and not one stone left upon another. Now you can look around today and you see hundreds and hundreds of little splinter groups from anywhere from 20 or 2 to 15,000 people. I mean two people to 15,000 or 20 is as big as it gets. But you know what? It isn't done yet. Now some of the Christ things Christ says in this chapter tell me that it is truly going to be not one stone upon another. When this persecution and ultimately tribulation gets fully underway, there will be no organizations left. They won't be there. I can show you that, I believe, very clearly here in Scripture. United will not exist. PCG will not exist. Living will not exist. Dave packs whatever it is, refabricated, uh, rehydrated Church of God will not exist. They'll all be gone. And most of those people and most of those organizations, and that's just the biggest ones that came to mind, there are others, smaller. Most of them still think they're going to Petra to a place of safety. And that is wrong too. <laughs> 
A lot of our cherished sacred cows of the past are disappearing. Perhaps Germany is the Assyrian and ten nations in Europe was wrong. Why would it be ten Israelite nations in Western Europe when Israel is to be destroyed that will be leading this thing? That always made a conflict in my mind. Wouldn't it be someone else who would destroy Israel? Not Israel destroying a tribe or two of Israel and then taking world ascendancy? I don't think so. So there are things like that that we thought we understood that we might not. Now understand, when the tribulation occurs, prior to that, God is going to begin to gather the faithful, true believers from around the world, one here, two there, somewhere else. Not organizations, not any one organization, but they will be brought to one place, and I know where the place is now, and there they will form a new temple, spiritually and, I believe, physically, so that these prophecies can be fulfilled. But when the true persecution and tribulation escalates and gets worse and worse, it will get down to every man for himself. When you have anyone using the name Christian persecuted and put to the sword upon being found, you don't have any organizations left. You don't have any people that can meet together in a group left. They would be absolutely afraid to advertise a meeting. They would be absolutely afraid And it would become impossible with famine, pestilence, persecution, and the sword going through the land to have any organized religion. So when it says, no stone left upon another, realize that even spiritually speaking, that is a truism. No organizations left except the one that God is going to begin to gather together. But everything else will be gone before the saga is finished. And only those he gathers, and he builds the organization, you see, one here, two there, from all over the earth, the four corners of the earth, he says. Only he knows who the faithful are, and he says there in Haggai, he will stir them to come and build a temple. So it is not going to be one of the organizations that's out there. It is going to be God who begins to call people together. And that's the way it's going to happen. So on both a physical building level and on a spiritual building level, verse 2 will be utterly fulfilled, completely. Now there are other places that modify that to what I just said. Proverbs 31, the fairest of them all, uh, he is going to raise up leaders that people will then come to. That's very clear in Zechariah 3 and 4. It's very clear in Proverbs 31 and a plethora of other places in the Old Testament. Isaiah comes to mind as having several passages 
40 through 41 and 2 and through 45 and 6. And how they will be coming to Zion there in Jeremiah 50 and Isaiah 48 and other places. Looking, saying, how do we get to Zion? We'll proclaim the word of God from Mount Zion and so on and so forth. Many, many scriptures indicate that. So, everything will be torn down except that which God chooses to put together. So let's continue then with this overview in verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately, no multitudes around, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? Then he proceeds to give them the conditions, but he doesn't tell them the amount of time. He only partially answers their question. And Emmanuel answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. So he's going to start answering their question about the conditions and the timing of all this. And he starts it by saying, Don't be deceived. I'm going to give you some information here, but there is a great danger then of being deceived. He would not have prefaced his remarks with that statement if there wasn't a great danger of deception occurring. And in fact, he enlarges upon that a little bit further down in the chapter. I have been deceived in the past, brethren about some of these things I've discussed already today, about maybe who Babylon was. I was deceived about who the great whore of Revelation 18 was. The Protestants always told us that was the Catholic Church. So the Church itself adopted, not the Catholic Church, but the true Church, adopted the idea that the Catholics were the mother harlot and that the Protestants were all her little Protestant prostitute daughters. And that was the view the church held for a long, long time. I'm here to tell you, and I have before and proved it, that that's wrong. God identifies the great whore of Revelation in Ezekiel 16 very clearly. He calls Israel the great whore. And it's a prophecy for the end time, and it says she'll be consorting with all the governments and peoples around the earth. Her lovers from around the world. Where is America today? Do we worship God or do we worship materiality and the trade and the commerce and the things that we can have that come from all over the earth and we trade and make political and military compacts with people all over the earth? So it is we who have done that. And if you read Revelation 18, it becomes very clear it couldn't be the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has not made all nations rich. If you look through the history of the Catholic Church, she has stolen from and impoverished nations over history. Did she make the Aztecs and the Mayans rich? No, she came and stole their silver and gold through the Spanish and Portuguese, but it's all the Catholic Church behind it. That's the history of the Catholic Church, is to impoverish people and keep them in poverty and fear. 
and ignorance. That has been her M.O. all the way through. Now, is the Catholic Church involved in the end? We'll see how much. The Bible talks about a one-world religion at the end, or something that will, they will try to cause all people to follow. Now, that may be a very strange amalgamation, considering the various different religions and beliefs that are around the world today. I don't think that all the Muslims are going to become Catholics. It doesn't seem to be working out that way. And I don't think that all Chinese are going to become Presbyterians. How, what form will it take? We don't know for sure. But I could see how the Catholic Church could be very, very much part and parcel and a basis for a lot of it. But it's a matter of identification then, you see, because the Bible in Revelation 17, I guess, 13, 17, talks about the beast and the false prophet. Now, the beast apparently is an economic military system. The false prophet is a religious system. But that religious system is different from and apart from the great horror of Revelation 18, which clearly in chapter 18 is an economic military combine. And it clearly says there that the beast and the false prophet will combine forces and kill the great horror. So the military economic world and the religious world will conspire against the great whore and destroy her. So the religious side of that will take shape exactly where it will come from and exactly what take, shape it will take remains to be seen. But it's becoming, I think, quite clear that Revelation 18 is talking about the United States of America. Or the United States Corporation would be a better way of putting it. Because there are two entities. We were the people of the United States of America at one point. But we have a shadow government now called the United States Corporation, Incorporated. And by doing certain things, we have made ourselves members of that corporation, and they own us, legally. I mean, through the legal system. <laughs> God owns me. But at the same time, the United States Corporation claims me. So it's up in the air is to I wind up belonging to and obeying. Every one of us is in that position. And we are going to have to choose and should now be choosing God over the governments that wish to take charge of us. And it isn't just the United States Corporation because it is in league with many nations around the world that have avowed themselves to ultimately take over this country 
and to take its people into slavery. We may get into more of that a little later on. What shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, the world, the age? Then he goes on to explain. Emmanuel answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. That has been looked at from a couple of different standpoints. One, that they would come saying that he indeed was Christ, but wouldn't follow what he said. And another view of it is that they would come saying that they were Christ, or that they were God. And ultimately, people who want to take over and rule the earth are trying to supplant or take over Christ's position. Satan is the present evil ruler of the world, and he is influencing people to take over and amalgamate the world into one government. That is what he aspires to do. Now, it will have varying results because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And Satan's kingdom is divided. Now, he would like to take over the throne of God. He has one-third of the angels under his control now, but he wants them all because he wants to rule the universe and everything within it, and he will again make an attempt to overthrow God in heaven. So it is his desire to have a united kingdom. And he is trying to take the disparate nations and religions of this world and combine them in a one-world government, just as he wants a one-universe government under himself. So he's working that out behind the scenes right now through men. And the Bible clearly shows that they will raise up a world-ruling empire and that it will have feet of iron and miry clay. And it will only last a short time and then it will fall apart because it is divided against itself with all kinds of different philosophies and beliefs and religions and so on that are hastily put together as hopefully a solution to the world's ills that they are helping create today. We are the solution, they will say. But it will only last a certain time, and then it will come apart. But they did ask about the end of this present situation on earth, the age, the world. So he said, don't be deceived, for many would come in the guise of Christ, or claiming to represent Christ, or talking about him, but there would be deception in their words. That we have to be careful of. And then he mentions conditions. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. I've been watching these things and these next few verses almost all my life, since about age seven or eight. And I'm old. 
And we see a war break out here. We hear of a rumor of a war there. I've always wondered, is this it? But here lately, <clears throat> as we build up toward World War III, we see it all over the world, and it's in the news every day, and more and more different groups going against each other. I think I quoted just recently that there were well over 100, close to 200 nations that have some form of war between them and other nations. I forget the exact number, but it was frighteningly high. Uh, it's gotten worse and worse and worse here in these last few years. Wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. So you're going to witness these wars from all over. And he's telling his disciples, his people, not them in particular, but those who would come after them at the end of that age, not to be troubled. So he's telling you and me not to be troubled when we see wars and rumors of wars. Now, is it natural to be afraid? Is it natural to be scared? Is it natural to see our enemies beginning to array themselves into different uh, uh, compacts, different treaties that will ally them against us? Yes, it is. If you are even half awake today to what's going on in the world, you have to see that we have enemies, this nation has enemies around the world who would love to see us go down. We are hated above all nations. And if you take the name Christian, that just adds a few shades of hate to it. But he says, don't be troubled. Now, these very disciples he was addressing there were going to see not many years thereafter, a falling away. A great falling away from the truth. They were going to see martyrdom of Christians. And even Paul, Saul at the time, began to kill Christians until he was struck down and God said, no, you're fighting on the wrong side. And most of the men who heard him say what he said right up here on the Mount of Olives were killed. Perhaps only John, who wrote the book of John and the first, second, third books of John and the book of Revelation, survived to die a natural death. And even he was boiled in oil, apparently, and it didn't have any effect upon him. So, personally, they were to go through these things, but he was telling them, even with what is coming, and he told them at one point, you were, you're going to die, most of you, in a horrible way. And Peter understood before he died what was going to happen to it. So did Paul. But they were not to be troubled, even though they were to die. Why? Because of the resurrection. That is the hope of the dead. Many, many people who are true believers of God and have the truth, likely about 90%, of those who were called into the church, into the truth, in this end time, are going to die in the events that will soon envelop the earth. 
But don't be troubled. Because there is a resurrection. And God knows who will be true. And even though 90% will go into great tribulation and more than likely die there, they will have space, chance to repent, to stand against the tyranny that is being opposed upon them, imposed upon them. And all it will take is repentance and turning to God wholeheartedly, whether it be for a minute or for a year. If that heart turns, if it changes, they'll be in that first resurrection. In the book of Revelation, I think it's chapter 12, indicates that about a third will repent during that time. Might be chapter 11, but somewhere right in there. So don't be troubled. Repent. Whether it be now when we have space and avoid all of this, this that is coming, or if you even go into it, you are going to know, brethren, what you need to do. And if you find yourself not being accounted worthy, as we'll get to, to escape these things, don't be troubled. Do what God has told you to do. It is incumbent on all of us to repent and turn to God with all our hearts. Some will now, some will not. Most will not. But at least be educated enough, at least be aware enough, that if you fail to do it now, as the pressure increases, you will be increasingly drawn to your knees. And eventually you will get that heart turned around and worship God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And his resurrection. So really is what he's saying. Don't fear those, as he said in another place, that can, can kill your body. Fear him who can kill body and soul. Fear him who holds the keys to eternal life and death. So don't be troubled by what men can do to you and what men will do to most of you and did to them personally. And here at the end, we'll do again to all believers they can find. That's why he says, be not troubled. We know who wins at the end. We know Romans 11 tells us going. He did not mean every individual, but he meant the vast majority. Because he did say there will be some weeping and gnashing of teeth. But many scriptures indicate that will be a minority. It's the, the perplexing part for you and me. Is what it is going to take to save us ultimately as a people, as Israel and the Gentiles as well. Because he opened it up not just to Israel, to Israel first, and then to the Gentiles, to all peoples. 
And if all Israel will be saved and the Gentiles are grafted in, then I believe most of the Gentiles will be saved too. All peoples. God did not create the various races and the different peoples and say, I'm going to prefer Israel in terms of ultimate salvation above the rest of you guys. He doesn't think that way. He isn't biased. He doesn't give preference in a wrong way or show favoritism. He worked through a specific people because of the specific obedience of Abraham and others along the way. And he opened a path through those who were righteous for everyone else. So it ultimately is his plan that all his children have opportunity of salvation and most will ultimately achieve it. God is either God or he is not. He can accomplish his purposes with his children or not. He tells us to follow certain guidelines to properly rear children. He is the greatest parent and father of all. And if anybody knows how to get his children finally mature, responsible, capable, and ultimately qualified to rule the universe forever, he's the one. Satan can't do it, but God can. So he's working with us. So be not troubled. Just do what you need to do. Please, and I speak to me, and I speak to you, do it now. If you don't do it now, as the pressure increases, do it whenever you can turn loose of idolatry and put God ahead of self. I don't know how much pressure that will take for you. I don't know how much pressure it will take for me. But God knows how to put the pressure on until our knees bend. Did he not say, every knee will bow to me? Now that means either willingly bowed or broken. Now, I'm saying some pretty hard things. And Christ was about to say some pretty hard things. But he said, not, do not be troubled. Understand, in other words. I am here, I will go there, and I will take care of you. And I will never leave nor forsake you. He is not the problem, brethren. We are. We are the problem, not him. We are in danger of leaving and forsaking him. We are not in danger of having him leave and forsake us. He's there through hell and high water for you and me. And both are coming upon us soon. Wars, rumors of wars, see you be not troubled. 
For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So we'll see wars. We will see wars increase. But increasing war is not the indicator of what the end is. It is one of the keys that lead up to the indicator of what the end is. So other things must occur. And he goes on then to explain what those are. You'll hear of the wars. That isn't the end. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And that's where the wars come from, is those kingdoms rising against one another. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. But the end is not yet. Not only will you see wars and kingdom against kingdom, but you're going to see these other things happening. And if you're aware and watching, we're having weather conditions in various parts of the world that keep crops from being produced. It doesn't matter whether it's a drought that doesn't give enough water for them to produce, such as we're seeing increasingly in California and some other places. But too much water and floods prevent crops from being produced as well. You can flood out fields and gardens. And that result is no food. And when conditions get to the point that food is not being produced in any great quantity, you will have famines, people starving to death. And we may even have conditions like that developing while there are already places in the, on the earth where there are millions of people who are starving to death. But when you've got a situation in various countries where Ebola is breaking out, you can't quarantine everybody. Life, commerce, industry, government, military, simply stop. Society grinds to a halt because everyone is terror-stricken that they will be the next one to come down with the disease. So they're afraid to go out of their houses. They're afraid to do anything. They won't go into the stores. The store owners won't go into the stores. Even a little bit of rioting like we recently saw in Missouri gets to the point where the store owners don't want to come there and open the doors out of fear. And when you have a major disease going around, that fear goes up incredibly. And things just simply stop happening. I know it can't happen in America we are protected from everything bad that ever happens in the world. And every movie that you ever saw had an American hero show up right at the end and save the world, or at least save the country. That's the way we've been programmed. It cannot happen here. This is Ephraim. Read all the prophecies about Ephraim. It can happen here.
And it will happen here. Famines and pestilences. When people don't have food to eat, pestilence and disease begins to spread. And when pestilence and disease come ahead of it, famine ensues as well. Whichever one comes first, you get a disease, then the crops stop being farmed. Or if you have a famine through drought and floods or whatever, then food stops and water gets bad and the pestilence follows. So lack of food and disease come together. And earthquakes in different places. Have you noticed lately how many volcanoes all over the world are erupting, coming to life, threatening to make some devastating eruptions? These things are increasing, but the end is not yet. They're the signs. They're the things to watch, things to be aware of. These are the beginning of sorrows. And it's going to get a lot worse. If famine and pestilence and wars aren't bad enough, it's going to get worse. Then it's going to start getting personal. Notice this. Then, after the beginning of sorrows, these things we've just talked about, then shall I deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. Now that's getting pretty personal. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Speaking to those men who would be the leaders of Israel, but primarily those who would be leaders of the church. So, yes, they're beginning to kill anybody who takes the name Christian or Christ in various parts of the world. But Satan knows those people, even though they claim Christianity, essentially are deceived and don't know who the true Christ is and what his beliefs are and what his doctrines are. They don't know the truth. They have a name, but they don't fit the Bible. But those who do fit the Bible are going to come under even greater scrutiny and persecution. They'll kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. That tells me that the church of God, those who have the truth of God, first of all, are going to be known by all nations. To be hated of all of them, you first have to be known of them, right? So there are some events that are in the prophecies. I don't have time to review them all today. In fact, I'm almost done for the day. But indicate that the church, the true church of God, is going to be very well known. And all peoples of the earth will hate it with a purple passion. Whatever a purple one is. For his name's sake, they'll kill us. And in one place it says, thinking they do God a service. They'll sincerely believe that killing us is something that really ought to be done to serve God. Witness Paul, who really thought he worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a Pharisee of the Pharisees and a Benjamite. And he hated the truth, 
and the true disciples of Christ with a passion, a killing passion. So here was a man who absolutely, utterly, sincerely believed he was right, and that he could betray true Christians to the death and be completely exonerated without guilt and without conscience in so doing. And, in fact, did deliver Christians up to die, thinking he was doing God a service. Paul did not know God at that time. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. What did God call those Pharisees? Snakes, serpents, sons of the devil, whitened sepulchers, unwashed cups, and on and on. That is the category Saul was in. He did not know God, and he worshipped his father, the devil. But he thought he worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you see? Can we comprehend how deeply and totally we can be deceived? Utterly. And when he was blinded and struck down, beat around the head and ears, and then he began to say, what's going on here? And then Christ said, Paul, why do you persecute me? Huh? <laughs> he didn't have a clue, truly. And then he began to listen. And it only got a clue, but he realized what he had been doing. You know, we can, in our own self-righteous indignation, think a lot of things and do a lot of things that are absolutely contrary to what God wants, and think we're doing the right thing. We really can. Saul's a really good example of that. Then he got his name changed to Paul when he repented. Now notice what it says along those lines in verse 10. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. We are coming to the point very shortly, and maybe we're already beginning to enter it. When people will be offended, they'll betray one another and they will hate one another. I've seen it already, haven't you? I knew a man who was a local elder, used to come down to Florida for, he was partly from Texas and partly he'd come to Florida for months at a time to work. And somehow he got hold of some stories about Herbert Armstrong and his unrighteousness and sins and whatever. And it doesn't make any difference whether Herbert Armstrong committed those sins or had those faults and problems or whether he didn't. God was using the man to build the end time work, or not the final end time, but the, the former temple. And God knew everything that was wrong with Herbert Armstrong. He knew every sin the man had ever committed. He knew everything that he had ever done. And in spite of whatever weaknesses the man had, God chose to use him. 
Now, wasn't Paul the same way? He had some pretty serious understanding problems. He had some pretty serious murder issues and hatred issues of God's true people and of the apostles. And he himself said that the things he wanted to do, he didn't do, and the things he didn't want to do, he did. Oh, wretched man that I am. So Paul had some personal sins, too. Can you believe that? He said so. Must have known what he was talking about. And yet God chose to use a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a snake, a worshiper of Satan the devil, who didn't know that's what he was doing up to that point to preach to Israel and to be the light of the Gentiles. God can use whomsoever he wishes. Herbert Armstrong had his faults. I knew the man pretty well, and I could see things there that I thought were false. I thought, I thought he had, in some respects, an undue amount of pride and sometimes an undue temper in various things that I observed my relationship with him. But I also saw a man who was compassionate, who, in spite of some personal pride, could be very humble. He was willing to admit errors when he saw that he had made them, and admitted that to me personally on more than one occasion. So I saw a man who was not perfect, but I saw a man who was doing a work that God was using. But this man I brought up a few minutes ago heard, that's called rumor, it's called hearsay, he heard certain things about that man, and maybe he even observed, as I did, that the man was not absolutely perfect in every way. His judgment was that Herbert Armstrong was evil. His judgment was, I am going to hate that man. I am going to write books, or at least a book he wrote. I don't know whether he wrote more than one or not at this point. But he wrote a book outlining every sin that he could think of or had ever heard of that Herbert Armstrong had ever committed or perpetrated. Every mistake that he could ferret out that the man had made. His attitude, in other words, an attitude can be almost everything, if not everything. His attitude was, I am going to attack and destroy that man. Some of you have read David Robinson's book. His son John took somewhat the same approach. I went to school with John. You can choose how you will look at someone. You can choose to forgive, and you can choose to forget, and you can choose to work with, or you can choose to hate. It can all happen within your mind. And God says that is exactly what is going to happen to a lot of people who know the truth. They will take the wrong attitude, they will take the wrong approach, they will put themselves first and be offended at one another, not like 
each other for whatever reason they decide that they don't like you and be offended. And they will take it to the next step where they will betray one another to the physical death. Spiritual death if possible and physical death if at all possible. Betray one another to die. So you have hearsay, scuttlebutt, anger, and hatred, which creates spiritual death, discourages, frustrates, causes people to turn away or whatever. And then you have that which, when said to certain people, would cause them to literally physically kill them. The physical death might be really a lesser issue than spiritual death. When we conspire, which means talk to someone else, about someone spiritually, and we say things that could plant distrust, negative feelings, we are in the process of destroying their trust, their faith, their confidence in one another that could lead to their spiritual demise. That is far worse than our physical death. Is that not what Christ said? Fear not him who is able to kill the body, but him who is able to kill the soul. So spiritual murder is worse. I don't think David Robinson and a lot of those people who were involved with Ambassador Report and some of those scurrilous writings back then probably gave too much thought to physically killing Herbert Armstrong. But they did everything within their might, their power, their thoughts, their writings to destroy him spiritually. So this isn't something that new. This is something Christ says will happen. And I can look back over the last few decades and I can see that it's already been happening. But it's going to get a lot worse. It's going to get a lot worse. We will, out of selfishness, many people, be willing to sacrifice someone else other than the self. I'll be sure I'm safe by ranting on you. That is a form of idolatry. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Therefore, we will not rat him out to be killed in order to try to save our own bloody hide. I know that's a curse in England. It's not quite so bad here. But our miserable hide, all right then. They'll betray one another and shall hate one another. That is not godly. We are here to love one another, and as Paul put it, love each other fervently. And when we start going the other direction, we are headed towards Satan's side. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. You better get your book out and see what it says and not be deceived. Because this is coming before the end arrives. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. 
sin will begin to increase. And this parallel scripture in Luke 21, it talks about that. How people will begin to drink too much, begin to mix with the world too much, begin to put materiality ahead of God. And first thing you know, they lose their spiritual comprehension and understanding and drown it in alcohol, drown it in materialism, drowning in entertainment or whatever they choose to drown it in. And first thing you know, they'll begin to lose their grip on God and the truth and everything that's important. Because sin will abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And when love waxes cold, it is replaced. There can be no vacuum. A vacuum has to be filled. And if there's no love, it will be replaced with hate. It's just axiomatic. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Now, is he not talking here about spiritual attitude? He's talking about taking offense. He's talking about the opposite of love, which is hatred. He's talking about sin instead of righteousness. So the key here is not to allow these attitudes that would cause us to betray one another to develop. Don't allow yourself to think negative about one another because you are choosing the fork in the road that leads toward hatred and bitterness and anger. Instead, shut that gate and take the one toward forgiveness and love and mercy and kindness that leads to spiritual life, not only for yourself, but for all other believers. We cannot allow ourselves to be included and lose our spiritual attitude and approach that we must have one to another. Because conditions are going to become such that as they chase us down, the church as a whole, some will be taken to safety as we'll see later. But those left behind, that 90%, are going to have a true challenge of not trying to save their hides but to show mercy and compassion and forgiveness of others and suffer their own life to be taken rather than betray someone else. Those are some hard spiritual issues to face. And we should be practicing now, day by day, to take the right fork, the correct fork, of love, kindness, mercy, forgiveness, rather than blame, accusation, hate, and all those negative emotions that our human nature will take us to. One is the way to God, the other is the way to Satan. And we need to pray diligently, one for the other, that each of us be saved from ourselves. And if we are praying diligently, one for another, then 
the negativity, the accusation, the bitterness, the hate will begin to melt away because the love of God will replace it. That's what he's talking about here, is having the right spiritual attitude so that when the pressure comes, we will have already been faithful in the little day-by-day individual things with one another here. And if we're faithful in the little things ahead of time, we'll be faithful in much when we reach that fork in the road. And he who endures with the right spiritual attitude and approach to God and man will endure to the end, even his own end, physically, in order to live forevermore. But if we betray one another and we stab each other spiritually and ultimately physically, that will not be enduring to the end. That will be enduring until our feelings get hurt or we can save our own hide by betraying someone else. So endure to the end with the right attitudes. That is the challenge before you and me today. Because that's what Christ is talking about. You've got to endure with the right spiritual attitudes to the end and then you will be saved. But if somewhere along the line you take the wrong path, and it can be very subtle, it can be very easy, it can happen to each and every one of us in our day-to-day interaction with one another, where we begin to demean one another and offend one another and hate one another, and then we're headed for destruction. Well, Christ is giving some pretty severe warnings here. He's telling us of severe things that are to to be coming. But I don't want us to miss the fact that when those truly severe tests come, if we're left behind and have to go through them, if we have not equipped ourselves with the love and the mercy and the forgiveness and the kindness and the attitude of God will go the wrong way. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Work on the little things today so that you will be faithful in much if it comes to you.